So today, what I want us to do in this passage is I want us to experience God's divine holiness so that it causes you to grow in the church body. Now, there are four ways that you can experience God's divine, majestic holiness in our passage today in, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. You can experience God's divine holiness in your eyes, in your sight, with your vision. Number two, you can experience God's divine holiness in your ears, audibly, in your ears. Number three, you can experience God's divine holiness under your feet. Number four, you can experience God's divine holiness in your mouth and on your lips. And all this is for the purpose of us being uh, growing in the church body, this, this temple that is growing up, according to Ephesians chapter 2, into a holy temple that is the body of Christ. And I'll get to, I hope to get to that later on. Now, what do I mean by experiencing the holiness of God in your eyes and in your ears and under your feet and what on your lips? What am I doing with that? Well, let me just lay my cards on the table outward and just let you know what I'm doing for you, for your sake. I am putting your feet in the sandals of the young prophet. Because we talk about, you know, things that are relative and contextual. This is very relative. Yes, it is very right for us to consider the young prophet Isaiah, put our feet in his sandals and say, how would I respond in that situation? What would I say? What would my demeanor be? Would I be arrogant? Would I be humbled? Would I come under the weight of it? What would happen to me if I was in his situation? So I want to step by step take that, take you through that in our path, in our passage in a linear fashion. In chapter six, verse one, we we're introduced to our passage again. In the year of King Uzziah's death, we learned about him. It says there, I saw the Lord in verse 1. I saw the Lord. Now I just have to stop there for a moment and say, I haven't even gotten through all of verse 1. And there's somewhat of an interpretive challenge here. There's somewhat of a conundrum that we have to get over, a hurdle that we have to get over. And let me explain what I mean. In the American Western culture to today, the idea of you or me seeing God would be cool. That would be wonderful. I mean, that's what, something we would tell our friends about. I want to let you know, I saw God the other night. Something like that. We think that, that would be really neat to see God. But just know that in the ancient old Hebrew mindset, the idea of even seeing God was very dreadful and terrifying. It would even think, make you think of your own mortality. We know this from the book of Exodus going back to the time of Moses. There's a scene in Mount Sinai where Moses wants to see God. He's alone with God on the top of the mountain. All of Israel is down below, the whole nation. And Moses is there with God and Moses wants to see God. He has a good desire in his heart. But you know what God says to Moses? What does Yahweh say in Exodus chapter 33 verse 20? You cannot see my face, Moses, for no man can see me and live. And you keep on reading in the book of uh, Exodus, you find out that there was a cardinal rule that said that if any Israelite so much as even touched the side of Mount Sinai, that person, man or woman or beast, shall be slain, shall be killed. People back then had a reverence. They had a fear of the Almighty deep ingrained within their own soul and their mind and their heart. And here we have a conundrum, a, somewhat of a, a hurdle to get over, over because this is a prophet who saw God. I'll read his words again. I saw the Lord. I saw him. 
And I, I have some relief to that later on, but for right now, I'm going to just confess openly, he saw the Lord. <laughs> we know this because he writes more about what he saw. What did he see? Here we have the halo effect. He's going to enter into the abode of God. He's going to enter into the temple of the Almighty and see the face of God. What does he see? I need to stop here for a moment and just take two steps back before we go three steps forward, okay? This is the halo effect. In, in, we're in the first part. Just looking through his eyes, what did he see? Seeing the holiness of God in your sight, in your mind, in your, in your vision. This has to do with what I call the halo effect. Um, maybe I can give a contemporary example of that. I think it's good to do this. Christ did this with regards to parables. He brought things down, uh, put the, the cookies on the bottom shelf, so, so to speak, so that people could understand what he's saying, that sort of thing. What are we talking about the halo effect? I want you to imagine in your mind that uh, the Queen of England is going to come to your house. So she's coming to your house. What is that like? There's many ways that I could criticize Great Britain, by the way. I've been there more than uh, on one or twice occasion. Um, Great Britain is a nation that has sadly departed, mostly departed from uh, Christianity. There are less Christians there now than there used to be. I could be critical about the nation in many different ways, but there's one thing that I do want to dwell upon, and that is that the English, the, the great people from Great Britain, know how to do the royal procession. You see, because if the Queen of England were to come to your house, she doesn't just come to your house. She comes to your house. This is a big event. This involves media. This involves secret police. This involves uh, horses and chariots and, and, and guards and a royal guard dressed in black, gold, and red. This is a big event. This is not the Starbucks experience in your blue jeans. No, this is a big event. This is where the queen is coming to your house. And of course, there's all that activity, probably rows and rows and scores of cars and people going up and down your street. There's hordes of media. There's satellite dishes with microphones and all kinds of media with, with cameras and that sort of thing. There's people running around in suits with walkie-talkies. And then come the royal guard. They're coming down the street. And then come after that the carriage. The carriage stops very gently to the, to the near side of your house. The carriage door opens. And then there is a hush, a pause. Everybody knows just when to pause, when the Queen of England is going to make her appearance. There's a hush and a pause. And somebody announced, ladies and gentlemen, I now pronounce to you, I now give you Her Majesty the Queen. And then there is a gushing applause. And then after that, the Queen of England steps into your house. Now, what did I just explain there? That's what we could call a halo effect. This is not just hum, some humdrum occurrence. This is where you start to stop in wonder and you say, I, I think this woman, this lady, is important. She is of high regard because there is so much activity going on around her. Now that's just an earthly, you know, just an earthly example of something that I want us to consider. But lift yourself up in this passage. Lift yourself up in Isaiah chapter 6 and go onward to his heavenly plane. What does Isaiah experience when he enters into God's house? Uh, the, the experience just multiplies. It's, it's all the more halo-like. It's all the more grand and amazing. What does he see? He sees the Lord first of all. I'm glad that his eyes go there first on Adonai. That's the center. God on high, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
It's as if your eyes go up. If you can just picture yourself being Isaiah, your eyes go up. You see Adonai, you see the Lord, and then you look down and you see his robe filling the expanse of this gigantic temple area. What is this vision telling you? And I'll tell you what it's telling me. It's telling me that God is king. And that is what I believe this text would have us to know today here in Rancho Cordova in December 2013. God is king and his robe fills the temple. This is, makes, makes us stop and wonder in awe. And this is very important that Isaiah experienced this, first of all. You know, there's two ways of looking at visions in Scripture, when you read about visions in Scripture. One way that I can think of when we're considering a vision in Scripture is to picture, as it, at, at, picture it as a, a kind of reward. You know, you work long and hard in ministry, and you get a reward for your labors at the very end of your life. You get the personal vision of of Christ enthroned on high. You get the reward of seeing Christ in his glorified state. That was the experience of who in, in our Bibles? The Apostle the Apostle John at the book of Revelation. That was the end of his life in the island of Patmos. At the end of his life he saw the Lord. But there's another way of looking and considering uh, the vision of God's in Scripture, in, uh, the vision of God in Scripture, and that is not at the end of your life, but that is at the very forefront of your life. Consider the young Isaiah, our prophet. What kind of territory is he going to go into? What kind of ministry is gonna, he going to go into? The, the ministry is going to be hard. If you keep on reading Isaiah chapter 6, God says to Isaiah, you are being commissioned as a minister. You are being commissioned as a prophet. But just know this, you're going to preach and people are going to do this. La, 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 la. They're just going to close their ears and block you out for the extent of your life. And this is a prophet who would be doing this for decades on end. There's a church tradition that Isaiah, the way he died was that he was sawn in two by a wicked king in the land of Israel who wanted him dead once and for all. This was what the, the, the task before him was very large and very burdensome. What would keep our young prophet going? It would be a vision of Adonai, the Lord on high, lifted up high and exalted on his throne with seraphim all around him. And the temple is great, and the temple is grand. By the way, that's the other aspect of this, whole, this halo experience that he has, is the robe filling the temple. Now, how big is this temple? That's what I want to ask. That's what kids ask, by the way. You know, when you tell them that you're going to get, get them a toy or something like that, they want to say, how big is it? Or, you know, when they see the presents under the tree, what, what present do they go to first? The smallest one? No, they go to the... The biggest present, that's the ones that kind of like leap out at you. Well, what leaps out at us in this passage is the size of this temple. The, the train of his robe filled the temple. It doesn't say there in this passage, by the way, what this temple looked like. I know that if you keep on reading scripture from left to right, that is from Exodus to Revelation, you'll find out that God's holy temple gets larger and more great and more grand with each passing age. An example of this is the time of Moses with regards to the tabernacle. That was but a, a tent with some gold artifacts inside of it. And you move onward to the time of Song, or not Song of Solomon, excuse me, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, and King Solomon's temple, and that was the temple proper. It looked like a, a temple like you would expect, had gold on the inside, gold walls left and right. 
And then you move to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48, and you find out that the temple in Ezekiel's vision has become all the more expansive. It's become humongous and it's grown in size and grandeur. You get to the book of Revelation, and by the time you're in the book of Revelation, there is no temple in heaven. In the New Jerusalem, it is a city, and God has become the temple. So this concept of the temple is dynamic throughout Scripture. It's getting larger and grander with each passing age. There's a sense of progression and surroundingness of all of it. His robe filled the temple. The temple was big enough. This is how big it was. It was big enough to accommodate flying angels. In my mind, that's something the size of a stadium. Only stadiums can accommodate things like uh, balloons and, you know, all those kind of things that go on with elections and so on and so forth. But it was an expansive, it was an expansive temple that he was in. We know this because there were flying angels zooming left and right inside. It says there in verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and it describes what they look like. It describes their, their, their demeanor. In verse 2, we have a bit of, um, I'm going to explain this as I go along. Seraphim. Seraphim. First of all, I just want to say, that's a cool name for an angel. Seraphim sounds cool. I'm just going to put that in, in brackets. But okay, I'm going to pull out of that for a moment here and just describe what does that mean. You may wonder, what is seraphim? Usually I just say cherub or angel, but I don't say seraphim, these, this extended word. Seraphim comes from the Hebrew word seraph, and seraph means fire. These angels were fiery angels. And here you have embedded in, in here a bit of what I call Hebrew contrast or Hebrew irony. Let me explain that for you just for a moment. What is Hebrew contrast? What is Hebrew irony? Hebrew irony is something like this. David and Goliath. Okay? And you'll see other instances of this as well too. David was... Not tall, but you know, relatively short. Goliath was a, a giant. That's right. Goliath is dressed in armor. David is dressed with just shepherd clothing. Not really fit for the moment. But he has a stone, and he has a sling, and he has his faith that is the size of a giant, by the way. We find that out. David takes on Goliath, takes his sling and slings it at him. Bullseye hits him right where it, where it counts. Goliath comes down and David kills Goliath with his own sword. A shepherd young man slaying the giant with his own sword. That would make you go, double take, what? That's what we call Hebrew irony or contrast in Hebrew writing. Well, here with regards to the seraphim, you do this. You do a double take. What is that again? Let me explain. Seraphim means fiery ones. It's like a, I don't know if you remember, like 4th of July. 4th of July is when we have all these sparklers. And now there's always some guy who has this sparkler that is super, super bright, like, you know, a flaming torch. And it's so bright in the middle of the night that you have to do this. It's too bright. Your eyes, your retina cannot stand it. Your ret you must put your hand over your eyes so that you don't damage your eyes looking at this sparkler. Well, that's what these angels are like. That's what these seraphim are like. They're blazing. They're fiery ones. But here's the Hebrew irony. What do they do with regards to themselves? They have six wings. How do they use those wings? Two, they flew. The rest of the wings, the four of their wings, they're covering themselves from head to toe. 
head to toe. Why? Because they're standing before the splendor, the majestic holiness of God. And that's so much that fire has to cover himself. Fire has to cover himself at the blazing glory of God. There is the Hebrew contrast. There is the thing that makes us stop and wonder in awe at God's holiness. It is a blazing, majestic holiness that we behold in this passage. So we want you to experience God's holiness in your eyes, but also we want you to experience God's holiness in your ears. And what does Isaiah hear these angels saying to one another? They're, they're saying it to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Literally, that is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh to the Lord of armies. So God is a commander of armies and kadosh in Hebrew means holy, set apart. Wayne Grudem in his book Systematic Theology defines holiness this way. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. God is totally separated from sin. He has nothing to do with it. And he can say, I can say this rightly, accurately, he is above it all. That's the amazing thing about God. God. People want to take God down to their level and make him explain himself to them. No, God is above it all. It says in uh, Isaiah chapter 50, 55, verse 8 and 9, God says to the people, My ways are not your ways, as the heavens are as high as the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. When we do evangelism, and this is a church, by the way, that does uh, a good amount of evangelism, I know there's always some, well, not always, occasionally I'll say that accurately. Occasionally there is some heckler who wants to say, you're telling me about God's blameless, being blameless. You're telling me about God being holy. Look, look, fella. Make your God explain death. Make your God explain why there's disease in the world. And here's a big long list of what God has to explain for you. You know what the Lord says to that? He shouldn't respond at all because he's, he is above it all. And, and that's bringing uh, the, the eagle or the bird down to the worm level. But consider the words of Job. And this really does defend God's otherness with regards to his holiness. Job chapter 38 verses 1 through 4. It says there that the Lord answered Job. This is after Job is scratching his head to the point that he's bald, wondering why does God allow all these, things, these bad things to happen to him. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That shows a, a sign of his power. And the Lord said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. If you have understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know, that's of course a rhetorical question. What God is saying is, look, Job, you, you, you're in no place to put the judge on the jury stand. That is not your role. Your role is to acknowledge that he is higher than I am. He is greater than I am, and I come underneath him willingly and joyfully. That is what we mean by God's holiness. He is elevated. He is above it. He is for a sacred office that is His alone. 
And we can defend God's holiness that way, like as with the book of Job. But this is something that we need to ex explore and understand in our hearts and minds how the Lord's holiness is expansive, it's preeminent, and it is above it all. It says the whole earth is full of His glory. And it describes Adonai, Lord, as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. This is another reason why, by the way, I believe that this temple is truly large, truly big, truly stadium-sized, because when it says the Lord of hosts, that's saying the Lord of armies. I don't know if you've seen a general or somebody in power who uh, has many armies under his command, and he can just say, go to work, and they know what to do. That's pretty impressive when you see that, by the way. Well, this is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who commands armies. My mind goes already to the New Testament. I think about that time. I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus Christ when he was beat up and prepared for crucifixion and he's a bloody mess and he's brought before Pilate and Pilate says, uh, now who are you? Who are you now? What is all this about? Can you explain this to me? There's one point in that dialogue between Christ, the Lord, and Pilate, the Roman, in which Christ says to Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would come down and they would wipe you out. But my kingdom is not of this world. That's power on hold. That's, I, could, I could wipe you out. I could say the word and you're out. But you know what? My kingdom's not of this world. I'm going to give you a picture of grace. Just hold back. That's the power of God's holiness. That's the, the power of His grace combined with it. This is an amazing account of what Isaiah, the prophet, the young prophet, not only sees with his eyes, but hears with his ears. But there's one more thing that we have to consider as well, too, and that is the foundations of the threshold of the temple. It says in verse 4, four the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And this is experiencing God's holiness, his majestic holiness, underneath your feet. I don't know how many of you have here have experienced an earthquake before. Um, I lived in uh, Southern California for quite some time. I can remember in 1994, I was not in Northridge, I was in another place, but it was in Southern California. And I can remember my parents' house uh, near Westchester, near LAX area, and it was suddenly just coming alive with the earthquake. The whole walls were shifting back and forth, and you, know, you usually don't see your doorway dance around. <laughs> usually doorways don't dance, they just stay as doorways. When I saw that earthquake strike, the whole house was bending and making these strange creaking noises. Thankfully, nothing was permanently damaged, but the whole house moved. Why did the house move? Because it was time to dance, right? It's because what? The earth is moving. You mean the earth can do that? The earth can do that? Yes, it can. And when it happens, it's very startling. You start to feel that small when the earth starts moving. You feel very small and very vulnerable. And that is exactly what is happening with regards to Isaiah the prophet. The whole foundation of the temple is moving at the shout of, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole temple, as it were, is bending the knee to Adonai, Lord. It's not just the angels that bend the knee and show reverence in their demeanor, in their posture, with their wings. It's the pillars of the temple as well, too. Bending the knee to Adonai, Lord. This is something that is truly captivating and it starts to, you start to imagine in your mind how it would gradually overwhelm our young prophet as he witnesses all of this. 
And the foundations of the threshold, verse 4, trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then there is how you can experience God's divine, majestic holiness in your lips. Now this is the point of what we may call catharsis. That's where, you, where you're purged. All your thoughts that you thought were your thoughts and good thoughts, they get purged out of you and you get they, those thoughts get replaced with God's thoughts. That's what happens with Isaiah's experience, especially with regards to his mouth. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Please indulge me with, with this. Please do indulge me for this for a moment. It's very crucial that you do, for your own soul's sake, understand what's going on here. I want to pause here with those words, woe is me, and just ask you the question, have us all ask the question, what did Isaiah sound like? In his ministry. I mean, wouldn't you like to have a YouTube video where you can actually get a, a moving picture of what does this guy sound like? I know we do that actually with some street preachers. Kelly uh, Salis sends me some videos and I go, okay, so that's what that guy looks like when he's doing street preaching. Okay, I got, a, I got an idea of that in my mind. What he sounded like. What was his demeanor? Well, we can do that with regards to our prophet Isaiah as well, too. If you turn one page over to Isaiah chapter 5, this is rather refreshing and, and, and insightful as well. This is what he sounded like, the Bible lets you know. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. Now know that Isaiah is, I would take him as a righteous man. I don't take him as a hypocrite. I take him as a righteous man who's earnestly seeking other people's repentance. And this is what he says to them. He calls sin, sin. He just calls it on the mat. If you're in sin, he lets you know you're in sin. There's no, there's no cushion here. We, we call it for what it is. It's an offense to God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Woe to those. By the way, that word woe means doomed are you. Doomed are you to judgment. Who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Woe to those. Doomed are you to judgment. Who stay up late in the evening that they may drink wine, that they may be inflamed by it. These people that he was talking to was drunk both in the morning and at night. They had a con constant run of alcohol going through their bodies so that they were constantly on a high that was intoxicating their minds, not allowing them to even think or act rationally. You see the destructive effects of that in chapter 5, verse 18 as well too. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin with cart ropes. That means the whole means of going from one sin to another is... Sin. Chapter 5, verse 20. Read that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's saying that the people that he was preaching to were amoral. Woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That means they're utterly corrupt. Woe to those who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. To top it off, they have a college degree that says, I'm hot stuff. Hey, I got a college degree. I'm wise in my own eyes. I've come full circle. And he's saying, no, you haven't. You're still a drunk. You still love your intoxication. You haven't changed one bit. But they're patting themselves on the back. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. This is the people who are enjoying the fruit of the land to the point of their own destruction. Woe is you. Woe is you. Now turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. What does he say there? 
This is his point of catharsis. This is the point where he is purged. He sees the Lord on high with his eyes, with his ears, under his feet, and now in his mouth. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I just have to stop here for a moment and explain what this means for you and for me. Now, this is a man who is a noble man. Uh, Isaiah was a, a, a writer in the Old Testament that was quoted many times in the New Testament. I believe even Jesus Christ quotes Isaiah in the Gospels. This was a noble man. This was a man of, you would say, he's above reproach. He's that kind of man. He's elder qualified. But when he stands before holy God, he looks at himself and he says, I'm just like the rest of the bums. I'm the, like just like the rest of the bums. I'm no different. You see, uh, most of us, when we think about the church and even where we are in the church, we think of rank. What is that rank? You ever seen the Olympics? You have the, what, the bronze? Silver, nobody cheers for the silver. And then you have the gold. And who wants to be the gold? Me, me. Who wants to sit to, at Christ's right side or his left side? I do, I do. That would be me, that would be me. We all have an understanding of rank. But when you stand before holy God, there is no variation of platforms. There is only a bench. And we all sit on the bench with our heads buried in our hands saying, Woe is me, woe is me. And we, we run over the agony of defeat according to our merits, which are pathetic. And that is exactly what happened with regards to Isaiah. He's not standing on a platform. He's sitting on the bench and saying, I'm just like the people I preach to. I'm that bad. Because my eyes have seen the Lord, the God on high, Adonai, the Lord of hosts. And something has changed within him. I think at this time it's very good to do this. One man who has taught me to do this is Dr. John Piper. He has taught me to pause, put it on pause, and meditate. Because some people are just gifted that way. They know how to do that. They know how to not, not jump to the next point. We need to pause here for a moment and think about this catharsis that young Isaiah has gone through. Because... He has said something that is very startling. The street preacher has said, I'm just like the people I preach to. That's, in effect, what has happened. If you want to put it in contemporary terms, this would mean your favorite pastor or preacher, Brian Anderson. Some people would think of somebody they knew on the radio like John MacArthur or John Piper or Paul Washer. Those men, Jonathan Edwards, great Puritans from time past, all of them are on the bench. They're on the bench. And you say, well, no, 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 they're on, they're on different platforms. No. Before holy God, they're on the bench, and they all need the same thing. They need somebody to pay for their sin, to cover their sin, and say, okay, you're, uh, we're, we're done. We're, you've covered your sin. You're, you're okay now. You can now enter. All of them need that. It's a very humbling experience to be in. The first meditation or thought that I have from this is observation number one. There is no pecking order of holy ones in comparison to the Almighty. And I just explained that for you just now. Another salient observation, I think is salient, at least in my mind as well too, is that this scene of Isaiah's sober realization may help us accept the doctrine of hell, the dreaded doctrine of hell. That's probably was hot in a lot of people's minds, no pun intended, but people are thinking, how can you believe this? I mean, there's what, 7 billion people on the face of the earth? You're going to believe that 
without Christ you perish for good in a fiery place. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't become part of that system. That's too radical for me. Well, consider the, the purging effect that Isaiah went through when he actually saw God for who he was, the creator who puts everything in, exist in existence to begin with. You see, most of us over life, apart from this book, if I were just to set this book aside, if I were just to set this vision aside, put it, put it away from me, you turn on the news, you watch YouTube videos, you get immersed with what other people are saying on talk radio, you start to think after a while that, you know what, I'm okay, you're okay. And you know, in case we don't agree on that, there's real baddies in the prisons that make me look better. Over time, what, you, what happens is you start to develop on your face rose-tinted glasses. And what rose-tinted glasses make you do is they make you see everything rosy. Everything's rosy. We do have some rough edges. We know that. But we're working on that. We need a little lift, a little improvement. But, but you know, an eternal hell for people who don't confess Christ or don't come to Him willingly in faith, that's a bit extreme, don't you think? And then we meet the holiness of God. The day comes when your life ends. The vapor has exploded. You come before a holy God and you stand for Him. And He says, Why should I let you into my kingdom, sir? Sir? Ma'am? Why should I let you into my kingdom now? And then comes the point of understanding. Okay. There's trouble. There's massive amounts of trouble. Because He is exalted and lifted on high. He is separate from sin. He is blameless. He is apart from sin. And just standing before Him, I look rather rough. In fact, I look like I'm full of manure in comparison to His holiness. I don't think I'm going to take manure into the holy temple of God. I think the holy God would not allow that. That's the contrast. Standing before a holy God makes our rose-tinted glasses shatter. And suddenly, Dante's Inferno, which is a hideous, gross-looking painting of hell, suddenly starts to make sense in comparison to his justice. Now, some may be inclined to say that's an overstatement, John. You're overstating Isaiah's experience. Woe is me, woe is me, etc. Perhaps what Isaiah means when he says, woe is me, that's just a gesture of respect saying, hey, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. You know how that goes. He's not that bad, so, might, so, so one might say. But keep on reading Isaiah chapter uh, 6, and then read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, and then read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. What happens then? Actually, in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. Wait a second. If it's just a kind gesture of respect, that's all we're talking about here, is Isaiah just saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. Not that he, he belongs in hell because of what he did, or anything like that. The, the contrast isn't that great. He's just showing respect. Then why does an angel have to come down with hot coals? I would imagine that hurts, by the way, to have hot coals pressed on your lips so that you know that you really don't belong here based upon your merits. You need atonement. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs, which I'm, I'm going to say if he had taken it with tongs from the altar, it's probably hot. 
He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And at that point, if I was there in his shoes and with my mouth, with my ears, with my eyes and all of that, I would just come undone and I would just say, Thank you, Lord. That hurt. That hurt my pride immensely. But thank you for giving me atonement. Thank you for taking away my iniquity so it's not a stench in your sight anymore. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, oh my God. That is the experience of Isaiah, and that is the turning point that we see in this passage. Now, the time is 11.30. I do actually look at my watch. I don't regard that as, as an unholy exercise. But I do want us to consider what the New Testament has to say about this passage. Because, again, there's always somebody who says, that's nice, that's good, that's historical, but how is it relative? It's historical, but how is it relative? Well, you know what, what happens here with our Bibles is that the New Testament makes it very relative because, as I said before, we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the incarnation when, when God has come down in the form of man and made himself known to men and made his salvation, his means of salvation through the cross, made known to both men and women and children on the earth. We live in the time of A.D., the year of our Lord. And there is a book, uh, there are certain books of the Bible in the New Testament that helps us understand this whole understanding, this whole catharsis of God's holy, holiness raised on high. And it guides us through the process of what Christ would have us to do with it. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 1 verse 17. That's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And I'm going to explain some things for you that I think the, a certain author, a certain biblical author, makes very clear with regards to Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, just want to put this in edgewise. By the way, the Apostle John is very much an equivalent to Isaiah in our Bibles because the Apostle John saw Christ in his glorified state and he writes about it. That's the important thing. He didn't just see it. He writes about it in the New Testament, what he saw. He saw Christ before his glorified state when Christ looked just like an ordinary man, but he beheld his glory nonetheless, the Apostle John did. It says in John chapter 1, verse 17, these words... For the law was given for the law was given through Moses grace and truth conversely were realized through Jesus Christ now remember when I was mentioning earlier this whole hurdle or conundrum about being able to see God and what Exodus 33 says about that no one can see God and live what does it say in verse 18 this is an interesting amplification to uh, what Isaiah saw no one has seen God at any time but then it says this the only begotten Begotten God, who is that? The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Christ has explained God. Christ has enabled you and me to be able to see God because He has come in the form of a baby, come in the form of the flesh, so that we could see Him as a man. God in the flesh, fully God, fully man at the same time. The incarnation allows us to see 
God. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 12, verse 41 and 42. John chapter 12, verse 41 and 42. This explains more, actually, about Isaiah 6 directly. And this is a, a bit of an expanded thought by the Apostle John in verse 41. It talks about the, the conflict that Jesus saw when he was on the earth and people were wanting to follow him, but they were falling under the fear of man and in, in the end denying Christ totally. Chapter 12, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Talking about Isaiah 6. And he spoke of him. That's referring to the Lord. That's what we read in Isaiah. But what does it say in verse 42? Now here is a subtle change in that use of the word him or he. The pronoun he is now has a different antecedent. Has a different uh, designation. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You see what the author has done there very tactfully. The author has said, we're talking about Isaiah's vision of him. Now we're talking about him who was rejected by men. And that him who is rejected by men is Jesus Christ. In essence, what John the Apostle is saying is Adonai can be seen as Christ the Incarnate One. You can turn in your Bibles onward and see how this even drives us to further application and more writings from the Apostle John. I'm going to turn way over to the end of your Bible at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 and verse 6. How do we apply what we read? How do we make it relevant for today? How do we get Isaiah chapter 6 in motion? Well, partly it's just a copy Isaiah. I, I think that's fair to say, by the way. Some people think that you have to go through this long, elaborate process in, in order to obey the Old Testament or to, to take heed from the law of God. You have to go through some technical process. Sometimes, there are some times when you can just say, okay, I think he got it right. I think the prophet got it right. We need to bend down low before God. That's simple. That's blissfully, wonderfully simple. And that is what you see the Apostle John doing with regards to Christ and the exaltation of his name. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says these words, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. He is holy, holy, holy. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the proclamation of who God is. This is how the gospel begins. This is how the church begins in establishing who God is. The attributes of God are crucial. They're of crucial importance. We dare not proceed without them. God is light. He is holy. He is separate from sin. He is radiant. And in him there is no darkness at all. So we proclaim him for who he is. And that's what the Apostle John did after he was seeing Christ for who he was. Verse 6. This is a turnaround. It's interesting where he goes from God is light, God is holy, to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, now this is what a lot of people want to do, especially on shows like TBN and uh, Prosperity Gospel broadcasts. They want to just make it so that you can just pony, just pony up right alongside God. He's my friend. He's my bud. God is my bud. can talk to him like this. No wall. You know, we're, we're, we're gelling. We're doing good. What, is, what does he say? This is a church letter. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. This is a person who calls sin, sin. They say, 
wait a second, you're, you're living a contradictory lifestyle and you're just going, you know, going through the motions? No, no, uh, you're interrupting things. You're interrupting the holiness of God. And there at that point, and people have been known to this, is to start to just come under the weight of just the first chapter of this church letter. <laughs> and they can be crushed. And the application for this time from Isaiah 6, from 1 John chapter 1, is to be crushed. That's by design. To be crushed is a good thing. I experienced, experienced it, I won't get into the details, but I experienced it quite recently. Just being crushed, saying, I'm a fool. I'm a complete fool. Why did I not see that coming? Why did I not dwell upon God's holy instruction and dwell upon it and eat upon it? Why did I just go willy-nilly into my own vain ways of carelessness? If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, so be crushed. That's the application. But thankfully, the gospel doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us in a state of being crushed. I'm thankful for that personally, I would might add. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, Here are endearing words. Now, these are endearing words that pick you up out of your pit. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And, and there's the operative word, and, if, anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see what the Apostle John is doing with righteousness, which is another synonym for holiness? He's saying God is holy, you're not, and when you are crushed by that, to a good, fine level of being crushed, know this, He would seek you out as a child. He would seek you out as a child and raise you up so that you may have holiness through another who is not yourself. That another, that other, is God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But it says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, talking about the holiness of Christ coming in our place, redeeming us, and his blood being shed on our behalf. Now there's more I can share that I wanted to share from 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. I don't have time for that now. But the, here's the thought with regards to all of this. This is all I'm going to summarize it right now. This is all for the purpose of the growing of the church. I used to believe, and maybe you believed at one time too, that I could do it myself. I could learn Bible and all this stuff on my own. I could learn about the holiness of God as a as a soloist. On you know what a soloist does, they they sing solo. They're just by themselves. They do just fine that way. There's a certain time in the Christian life in which you find out that just does not work. It takes a church for this thing to raise off the ground. It takes a church for people to come around each other to correct one another. I've been corrected in my Christian life by brothers and sisters who have said, John, you blew it. You blew it. <laughs> um, you need to correct that wrong that you've been living. You blew it. I've been helped by brothers and sisters who do that. The Apostle Paul has a vision as well too, and that is for that we, the church, would grow up as a holy temple through correction, through exhortation, through holding, clinging dearly to the doctrines of the faith that are grounded in our Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, these words. 
You can think about the temple that we read about earlier. Chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being our cornerstone. And here's where it all comes together. In whom the whole building fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, that's plural, that's people who are Christians together, being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you are, if you're a Christian, you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, singular. But this is talking about plural. We're a corporate building of the Holy Spirit being raised up by the holiness of God through the work of the Holy Spirit because of the cross. And this is a great work of redemption. This is a great expansion of the New Testament off of and out of Isaiah chapter 6, reminding us that we do have a faithful Redeemer, and His name is Jesus Christ, a man and a man.